Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Courtney Holm is an expert in circular fashion and founder of ABCH, a circular fashion label working and making clothes in Melbourne. She's extremely principled and aside from making beautiful clothes, she's using ABCH as a tool to challenge the status quo in an industry known for its huge amounts of waste. The lengths that she's gone to to create fully biocircular clothing are quite extraordinary, with the development of garments that are entirely produced from natural materials, durable, easily repaired, and ultimately biodegradable. The chat with Courtney was fascinating, and I hope you enjoy it. So if you could please introduce yourself and just tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I'm Courtney Holm and I'm the founder of ABCH. We're a circular fashion label based in Melbourne and yeah, we make clothes for a circular economy. And what led you to start ABCH? While I was studying, I was learning a little bit about sustainability at a very, very base level. Um, there were some things that my that my course taught that was nothing to do with fashion. It was more just theoretical. And um, I finished my degree and started working in industry and started to see even just the small places that I was like either interning at or working for, seeing how much waste was generated just in like a sampling sort of process, not even like a full production mode. And then I started my own label just off the back of what I'd done at, um, in my honors year at uni and started to see how the waste was piling up that I was generating. And the waste kind of like triggered something in me that was like, oh, this doesn't really sit right. And I decided that maybe I could do something really different to change it and to actually take on those things that were not sitting well with me. And I thought, oh, what if I could make a label and a business that actually was addressing all of these issues and what if I could find out what a sustainable fashion label really would be. And so that started a journey of research and development about a year long where I was looking into initially like what sustainability really meant for fashion and then really got into circular economy sort of um, ideas and started thinking about clothing not just as this like object that you have to deal with once it's already made, but all of the raw materials that go into it at the beginning being each individually impactful. And then when you put them all together, having another impact as well. So long story long, I started ABCH and um, yeah. Could you do a quick definition of circular fashion? For me, circular fashion is something, a garment that fits into the circular economy, whether it's going through like a technical cycle or a biological cycle, it's about a material uh, and multiple materials being brought together that are designed like for a purpose. So using the right materials for the right purpose and then combining the right materials together for an optimal end of life. And in between that, all of the kind of life phases before that end of life to be extended for as long as possible. So for me, that's what circular fashion is. It encompasses repair, resale, rental, wardrobe swaps, um, resell. It encompasses all of that stuff, recycling. But it's not any one of those things on its own. It's yeah. the system. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have a particular way that you describe um, circularity or circular fashion? Just just for your brand? Like what, what's mm. your interpretation? 
I mean, for us, it's about three things. So we look at the birth, the life, and the afterlife. So it's like, how is it made for birth? You know, where did the raw materials come from? What materials are you putting together to make the garment? And that's where all of the decision-making for the next, you know, the catalyst for the next two phases is determined. And then there's life, and that's all about the customer and speaking with them and being with them and helping them to make the garment last as long as possible. But also it feeds back into birth because the things we learn from customers through, through wear and tear and the data that we actually collect from what happens with the garment in its life, where does it met, like where does, where are the holes that form um, in that garment on a regular basis? So we do free repairs for life on all of our pieces. And so we get to see, oh, this particular pant is always like busting in this one area. How can we go back to birth, back to the design phase to actually reinforce that seam or make it easier to um, disassemble or, you know, looking at how we can tweak the design process from the information we learn about in life. So life is about keep it in use for as long as possible when it's, you know, no longer able to be worn by you. Can you give it to someone else? Can you cycle it in some way? Can it um, be, you know, resold? Looking at like all of these different kinds of ideas. Um, and then finally there's afterlife, which is about, okay, when it finally does reach that point, we take all of our clothes back and we encourage people to send anything back to us when they no longer want it. If they don't want to resell it or if they just feel like it's completely worn, worn to pieces, we want to take that back because we can actually dispose of it properly. We know exactly what it is and it can enter our current kind of waste plan that we have already for our like industrial waste. And so that's kind of the place where we're looking at, okay, sometimes it will actually come back through to the life phase because maybe it's not ready to, yeah. to be recycled. Yeah. Maybe it can be resold um, or maybe it can, you know, be repaired and then be given a new life somewhere else but also um, like developing recycling programs so that we can actually shred that material back to do um, another round of, you know, material from that old material. And so that's like an ongoing process for us um, and is actually something that's taken time. We couldn't launch with that because we only want to work with these materials that we know 100% what they are. We don't just want to use any old recycled material that's got polyester blend mixed in it and all sorts of stuff and starts like the whole process again of what do we do with this at the end of the life. So for us, it's about really good quality raw materials coming through that, flowing through, and then coming back to us so that we can actually recycle them back to the life, uh, to the birth phase. And failing that, failing all of that, customers at home, Maybe they're overseas, maybe they live in regional Victoria and they can't get back to us or the shipping is like too, you know, carbon intensive, whatever the reason might be, they could just cut that up and put that in their compost bin. Hmm. In, in my industry in design and construction, the waste is a little bit less apparent because you, you spend so much time away from site and most of that waste is, is generated on site or perhaps elsewhere where the products are getting made. Are, pe are people more likely to be aware of waste in your industry? Unfortunately, no, because I'm in a, I guess, in a slightly more uh, unique position that I kind of just always wanted to manufacture locally, more because I guess I really care about the making process and I have a really strong um, sense of my design process being embedded in making um, to the point where I still make a lot of my own samples while I'm while I'm designing. And I think that having that really keen interest in making, visiting factories, going to actually see the manufacturers and, and, and have 
you know, more regular discussions with them is why I was more, I guess, prone to seeing how much material was around me and how yeah, much yeah. Um, was made, was going into offcuts. And, and I guess, yes, some people would see that, but most designers, fashion designers, like traditionally, probably wouldn't even see that. They okay, yeah. are most likely, I mean, 95% of the clothing made in Australia is made offshore. And you wouldn't have any idea what that would visually look like, um, the amount of waste that would be made when you're designing on a computer screen and sending the tech pack off to China and the product arrives, you know, three months later. It's, it's a totally different thing. Um, but in saying that, like, if I just think back to even just being at university, there was always so much waste. Paper, you know, when you're cutting up the paper and making patterns and you make mistakes and you just grab a new piece and grab a new piece of calico and you're constantly, like, just prioritizing the design process over considering the materials that you're actually using to do that and not considering even all the prep materials that you might not consider being a part of a garment's end waste, but mm, it actually yeah. is. So, yeah, I think it just was a something that was particularly of concern to me. Can you describe what it's like walking into your studio or making space? Sure. So we have a factory and it's kind of a factory studio stock room um, all in one. So it's a, it's a nice big open warehouse space. When you walk in, there's lots of natural light um, and you walk in and there's a big open gallery space that we use um, as a, like we, we let other people hire it out and run their own events and creative practices in there and more short, short term stuff. And then you walk around the kind of movable walls that we have um, set up in there and that's our factory and it's all open. Um, our, yeah. And yeah. And is the way that you work integrated quite strongly with the, with the uh, way you've set up the studio? Uh, I, I, yes. In, in the, in the aspect of how we like manage our practice. So the manufacturing aspect and, and how we actually deal with the waste. We have like a waste hierarchy. Um, so any sort of off-cut material, be, be it, you know, pattern making paper or actual fabric or elastic, whatever it might be, any materials that come out of the, the making process, those materials have essentially like an order that they would go into based on uh, how big they are and whether we can use them for garments currently in production. And if they're not big enough for that, we might put them into a like remanufacture pile where we'll put them together and make new materials or do creative kind of more one-off projects with those pieces. And then finally pieces that are like left that don't have really any more purpose as they are, they're too small, like joining it together would just be like completely pointless. Those materials uh, are saved for mechanical recycling, where we would shred the material back down to its fiber state so that it can be re-blended with virgin material and made into a new yarn and, and then into a new fabric and can replace some of that virgin material that would normally be needed to make that fabric. Do you have a favorite piece of clothing that you, I suppose that you think about or come back to as quintessentially important for the the brand you know that might be for the inception of the brand or for mm -hmm. um perhaps just embodies all of the 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 values that you have yeah i'd say there's like a there's a garment that is often referenced and we kind of come back to a lot and that's um the ao5 linen shirt it's quite it's a simple um 
you know, kind of white button-up shirt that you would see in essentially anybody's closet and it would fit in. Uh, it's not it's not crazy. It's not that, you know, unique. It's got a few little design details that make it unique to us. But other than that, it's it's just something that could slot into almost anyone's wardrobe, um, whatever shape, size, gender, um, age that you may be, uh, it works. And we've seen it work for so many customers. And it was cool because when we first designed the piece and put it out for a research and development sort of session that we held with um, our early customers. They, we found that people just gravitated to this piece. It was originally meant to be a women's piece, but then, and, and I guess we had an idea of who our target market was, but so many other people just gravitated towards this piece and wanted to try it on and give feedback on it. And we were, it kind of actually is what pushed us into making our clothes be more, I guess, gender neutral and able to be worn by anybody. And we really started to embrace that idea from that bit of customer feedback, which was really nice because it came from the customers. It wasn't just an idea that we had. Mm. Um, and I really love when things start with the customer sure, because it's, yeah. It's just really, it's a special, it's a special progression. Mm. Um, it's much more human centered, isn't it? When, when the yeah. customer gives you, you know, you're getting, you're getting data back and you're, you're starting to, to make something with that idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. But then also I would say there's a material that I come back to all the time as well. And okay. it's different from the shirt. Yeah. Um, I'd say the shirt as a designed piece. Yes. That's kind of a quintessential ABCH, but then we have this rib material that we developed and designed and made in Australia. So we get it knitted here, we get it dyed here, we do it all locally. And it forms the base material for our most popular style, which means we usually end up having to order large quantities of it to in order to get a color and then refill that color when it runs out. We have to always meet a certain minimum so that the kilograms work for the dye bath. And um, yeah, so this material I'm always coming back to because it does, just simply because we're making more pieces out of that material, it generates a lot more offcuts. And so those offcuts are often a source of inspiration. We made all of our face masks out of that offcut. We make like, I'll make an art piece out of that, those offcuts quite regularly. The material itself is just really lovely. It's got a hand feel that I really like, and it lends itself to a lot of different different things. And so I feel very connected to that material. I'm never sick of it. And I'm always ready to come up with something else to make out of it. So I think as a material, I'm a, I'm a very like textile based sort of person. I love textiles. and I think it makes the piece when the textile is really good. And so, yeah, I love challenging myself to come up with something completely different to use that material for. And is there many materials that you guys have developed yourselves? Um, there are some that are like a bit of a collaboration. So we work with, we'll say, look, we're looking for this sort of weight. And so we'll get a yarn in and then we'll try and kind of meet the spec that we're looking for because we're looking for a particular weight or a particular material structure. Sometimes our knitter already has things that are similar in their archive because they have, you know, decades of materials that they've been making forever and ever. And so, you know, Sometimes we think we're inventing something that's not, it's not actually us. And that's, that's one way to go about it. And then other times they are like limited edition dead stock materials. I don't really like using the word dead stock, but it's people understand usually what that means um, or surplus material. Um, and other times it's just a really, um, yeah, just a really beautiful material that our, that our uh, fabric knitter is going to do anyway. And so we'll, we'll purchase it because they've come up with the idea and 
yeah, we'll just choose the color that we want to do. And yeah, so it's kind of a, it's a bit of a collaboration um, of sorts. And is your preferred mode of designing to start with the textile? I can go either way. Uh, if I find a textile I really, really love, um, and that's typically probably more of a woven fabric. So there's wovens sure. and knits, right? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I know I'll the explain. difference. I'll <laughs> explain. Yeah. So like a woven material is made on a loom and it's kind of like overlapping overs and unders and yeah. gets chopped yeah, at the I end. Get it. Sure. Like your shirt is a woven material. Yeah. My shirt is knitted. So it's made on a circular knitting machine and all okay. the knitting needles, like a granny knitting at home, like it's yeah. that, that on a much smaller scale, yeah. but a much bigger scale, yeah. if that makes sense. I'm making big hand motions and no one else knows what I'm doing. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, I find with a woven material, I'm often inspired by the that material and then the design will come second. And with a knit, I'm really comfortable designing in knits and, and knowing exactly what kind of weight and hand feel I want to have. So I'm happy to design it and then seek out the material that I'm needing for that particular look. What's biocircularity? Uh, well, so we work with biological materials. So biological circularity is what we say, because basically, I don't know how familiar your audience is with circular economy, but there's... There's probably a little bit of knowledge, but yeah, I, I think uh, explaining that would be great. Yeah, cool. So essentially, if you're looking at materials in a circular economy, they're either technical materials. And when we say technical materials, it's like expensive, difficult to extract materials that you really want to keep around and in use for as long as possible, whether that's through repairing or remanufacture or um, recycling. You know, you're thinking like, you know, metals and um, synthetics and plastics, things that you can potentially bring back down to their raw material state and make again in the same quality or higher over and over again. And then you have biological materials that, sure, while it could maybe potentially have uh, aspects of technical where you can cycle it, eventually at the very, very, very end of it all, it can go back into the earth safely and biodegrade safely and become nutrients for the next thing to grow. And so the idea of biological circularity is that, yes, we have all these plans to cycle and repair and extend the life and then one day recycle the materials back into new materials. But along that way, we maintain the integrity of the biological material so that one day down the line, that material can actually go back into the earth. Because with all the technical materials, especially in clothing, maybe it's different in you know car parts or uh, other, other kind of technical materials. But in clothing, if you're using a technical material like a polyester, which is a synthetic plastic um, that's in most of our clothing these days, that has nowhere to go at the end of its life uh, once it's kind of reached the last the last leg, it's going to go to landfill because there's no there's no kind of commercial level recycling solutions right now. That material is literally sitting and degrading into smaller microplastics, uh, whether that's in the ocean or on land. Like it's not great. Whereas a biological material, as much as you don't want to end up in landfill either, should be able to you know be composted or be able to degrade back in a home garden, for example. Mm. So we don't work with technical materials. That's why we don't use zippers. We don't use plastic buttons. We don't use plastic threads. So all clothes, like 99% of clothes are stitched together with plastic threads. People don't realize this. They think I'm wearing an organic cotton t-shirt. It's so natural, but there's definitely plastic in there. And so it's, uh, 
it's kind of quite revolutionary when you look at it and you try to make the whole garment biological. It's really tricky to do. It was almost impossible when we first started the label. And now we're at a point where it's 100% biological. So all of your garments are 100% biological? Yeah. Wow. Yep. So even the threads, we use um, tensile, which is based on eucalyptus uh, wood pulp and is completely, yeah, plastic free. Could you talk through some of the other materials that are in there that might, you know, that might traditionally be a plastic or, yeah, or a metal or whatever? For sure. I mean, it happens a lot in the fabric. So they'll often blend like a cotton and a polyester material uh, fibers together uh, to make it a bit cheaper to manufacture because cotton's a bit more expensive to yeah, produce than yeah. poly. And so you want a cotton feel, but you'll blend some polyester in there just to make it make it lower cost. Um, that's a really bad one because once it's actually woven or knitted into the sure. material, how do you separate right. that again? Right. You can't unknit it. So it's a um, that's one that's kind of snuck in there. It can be in the dyes. It can be in a finishing, so anti-wrinkle um, or formaldehyde. It could be inside of a cuff or a collar. It could be in a button. Most buttons are plastic. Uh, zipper, zipper tapes, um, usually plastic. The labels that actually sit inside your garment as well are mm, mm. nine times out of ten either a nylon or some other sort of synthetic material that's easy to and cheap to print on. So, yeah, there's a lot of places it could be just kind of hiding. Metals, you know, look at a pair of jeans. There's rivets all over that that can't be reused. You can't snap those off and re-put them onto a new pair of jeans. What happens to that material? It just stays on the jean and goes into landfill. And you've taken a potentially biological product, 100% cotton jean that has, you know, by all intents and purposes, the potential to biodegrade, but you've added in like a technical material, whether that's a metal or the plastic in the zipper, and made it really difficult. It's possible. You can cut all those things out and like use manual labor to do that, but it's expensive to do that. And it's an, another step of like who pays for that? Like what at what stage is that? Um, yeah, who's responsible for that? Were there any really, really difficult parts of the garments to um, replace out initially that you've, that you, mm. yeah, were particularly happy with that you found a solution? Yeah. Um, so our brand labels, so, you know, when you look in the back of any shirt or pant, you see the brand name right there, right? And um, when we first started, there was no cotton alternative. Uh, you could do it with a print, you could print onto cotton and stick it on there, but the print generally wears off over time. And so we had to go with a not so great solution, which was using a recycled PET label, which, you know, slightly better because it's recycled, it's not virgin plastic, but we designed the label in a way that it could be cut off really easily and it wasn't like sewn into a seam. So you can snip off that label at the end, just through the threads and it would be able to be removed and make the rest of it still biological. But in uh, 2019, we solved that problem anyway. So we've actually come up with a way to make organic labels, organic cotton labels in that same fashion. So it's woven in, um, it doesn't rub off. It's not just printed on, gives a really beautiful effect. And yeah, it's, it's, we don't have that problem anymore, which That's is That's really nice. cool. Yeah. And it was just this little thing, you know, that ni like, it's like niggled at me for so long, yeah. but we like, one of the reasons we list all of our um, bill of materials on every product is to be really upfront about that with the customer, one, so they know what to do with it at the end of its life, but also two, it kind of keeps like a fire burning to find a solution for it. Because yes. it's not just this invisible thing that no one will know, no one cares. It's like, oh, it's out there in the world and people know about it. And 
I just want to make that 100%, you know, all or nothing kind of person here. So yeah, it was, it's good. It's like an accountability thing as well. You said that your work is informed by um, Cradle to Cradle and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Whole Systems Thinking. Could you just talk a little bit about what those organisations are and what why they've been so important to what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that they're the... Uh, pretty much the authorities on, not that they invented the circular economy, but they're pretty much today's authorities on on what that actually could look like um, through the work that they've been doing. So Ellen MacArthur Foundation in particular is very interested in I guess this idea of a circular economy that's scalable, that you know large companies can you know get on board with and actually start changing their behavior to be able to kickstart this this whole idea of a circular economy where materials flow in and out and nothing is wasted. Um, and I think like that methodology is, is yeah, is, has given me, I guess, a greater understanding of the big picture and how like this could all actually work together. I don't think that the circular economy is like the only aspect of this and that we can just solve all of our problems by recycling stuff because that's not, to me, that's not what the circular economy is about. It's about like a hierarchy. It's about natural materials being kept separate from the um, uh, from the technical materials. And that's kind of cradle, cradle to cradle really like set that framework of keeping those materials separate and being able to design differently, using design as the tool um, and the, 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 the catalyst of what's gonna actually happen to all of these things that we make as humans. And using nature as our example, you know, how can we learn from what nature has shown us in terms of zero waste? That's like nature is zero waste. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like these are the kinds of like themes that I've gleaned from these organizations. Um, and whole systems thinking, which is an idea that you don't just try to solve the problem that you see in front of you. For example, if I see a lot of waste, I don't just go, oh, what am I going to do with all this wasted stuff? Let's try and design something with this waste. But it's going back to the root cause and understanding why are we creating waste in the first place? Mm. How do we actually address that Mm. and take it right back to the beginning and actually see it as a whole system where there's lots and lots of different nodes and different uh, moving parts happening so that you're not potentially causing a greater problem by, you know, changing something in that system. And so avoiding negative feedback loops and trying to be really aware that this is not just a a singular thing. There's a lot that needs to be considered. And so when I'm designing a garment, it's looking at not just like, yeah, like I said, It's not just looking at, okay, how can we make sure that this piece gets recycled one day? Sure, that's a tiny piece of the whole system, but there's a lot more to it than that. And it starts with the design and the design thinking for circularity, but also keeping your technical materials and your biological materials separate so that you're making those things easier down the line, but then also thinking about cycles and how do you actually extend the life of something? Because if you just make cheap crappy clothes that can be recycled and you're still using up new resources in order to do that 
uh, and you're still planning to be growing every year constantly, it doesn't really, like the maths doesn't add up. You're still mm -hmm. gonna need to extract raw materials. You're still gonna need the energy, really intensive energy to be able to recycle those materials. Mm -hmm. So how do we actually look at the life of the, of the thing, whatever it might be, and how do we extend it and cycle it back many, many times before it actually goes to that you know, end, end use phase? So if you're a, you're a circular fashion brand, um, is there a role for you guys? Do you consider, you know, how um, we might reduce the amount of clothes that are needed at all or, um, you know, other, other inputs that impact how much resources are used? Definitely. I always come back to the root cause of the problem that we are in when it comes to waste is that we're overproducing. When I say we, I mean the collective world, we, we're, we're overproducing and we're overconsuming. And the problem is that. And so it's, yeah, I guess like for me, I'm a, I'm a designer and I'm making clothes and we're selling clothes. And so, yeah, like it feels like we're almost in this commerce world, but we're anti-commerce and it's this kind of push-pull. And I guess having these little mini crises, like I was talking about before, where I'm like, am I just contributing to the problem or is what we're doing actually shifting anything, even at a small scale? And so, I mean, I'm still here and I'm the business is still going. So I, I still believe in that, obviously, um, in order for me to be continuing on. But it always does come, it does come back to this idea that there is too much stuff being made. We are over-extracting and people are being, I guess, conditioned to think that they have the right and should and convenience and all the marketing that gets thrown at them on a daily basis and social media and all the things that, you know, we all have to deal with on a daily basis, like people feeling like they, um, they should or can consume as much as they are and there not being any consequences. And that's actually part of what I talk about at ABCH a lot is about not buying something unless you really need it and you think about it. And actually, so many of our customers I know are very, uh, they're, they're along in their journey to a point where they actually do think about this stuff and they come back to the website like 56 times before they make a purchase and they ask lots of questions and they want to know, you know, potentially how long the garment is going to last or how many times could it be washed or what should they do if they get a stain. And I think like it's really fantastic to start to see the customers like leading that conversation now. Like we've been leading it for a long time, but when they're on top of it and asking us, I love that. And I think that's really, um, it's a sign that people are shifting very slowly, still, slowly still, but they are shifting to that mindset of consideration before making that purchase. And I think there needs to be a re-education, which we're also trying to gently do. It's not easy to do, especially when you are a brand selling stuff again, um, is what a garment should cost and like why a garment should cost, you know, X amount and not that amount and what the true kind of human cost is when, when clothes are sold cheaply. And also what that conditions people to expect a, a garment is worth. And yeah, so I think there's a lot of these like fundamental, um, fundamental things that really drive what we do and keep us in check. And 
it kind of aligns me back to the purpose and the vision of the brand is to be a healthy alternative to what's out there. And I'm reminded of that when customers reach back out and say, I've learned something new or, you know, I've really, I've really like fallen in love with this garment and I'm going to wear it until it's threads, you know? And I think like, that's, that's why, that's why we're doing what we're doing. So the, the certification systems that you discussed, do you, do other brands subscribe to those systems? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of very, very large brands that are signed up to Ellen MacArthur's various programs that they're, that they run. They're very focused on large businesses. Um, so yes, absolutely. And I think in the last five years in particular, there has been, there's been a scramble for businesses to, I guess, at least appear as though they are going circular. That's something you'll hear. We're going circular or on a pathway to circular. Yeah. So yeah, it's not like a kooky thing anymore. Maybe it was at one point, but yeah. Then is it an issue that people are greenwashing and is that a major concern in, in the industry at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Greenwashing is a major, major concern and greenwashing happens in all sorts of forms. Um, some, sometimes it's very sneaky and very tricky. It can just be the way that an image is portrayed. It could be one word. It could be something like just very wholesome looking that you think, oh, that must be sustainable. <laughs> you know, like I know that sounds so basic, but it's, 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 the emotion that they're trying to evoke. And I think like with greenwashing, that's the danger is that it can be super subtle and almost undetectable uh, if you don't have time to do tons of research and look into every claim that someone's making. Then, you know, like how is the average person who has a full-time job and a full-time life, Mm. you know, how how are they supposed to like look into all this stuff when Mm. brands can literally say whatever they want right now? Yeah. And no one's, no one's stopping. Like, sure, people get called out a lot, but the damage is done. It's too late. Like, they've probably already sold out of that collection or of that item that they're trying to greenwashingly sell. So, yeah, yeah, it is a concern. And I think when we started this business, it was a much more of a niche area. And now, because it's, like, the cool, trendy thing to be seen as sustainable... I'm not uh, able to cut through with my message as much because we're not, you know, we are having to get very specific about what we do that's different and it's very technical and it can be really hard for someone who's a, a customer who's kind of at the beginning of that sustainability journey and you're talking about circular economy and biological materials and it's like this is the kind of language we have to do to really uh, I guess back up what we're what we're talking about because yeah. we can't just say we're a sustainable label. The end, like you, we can't do that. Like we have to, we have to say why. And um, that's hard for a, a newbie kind of sustainable kind of journey person to understand and grasp like immediately. It takes, it takes a little bit longer. So yeah, I totally get it. And I, and I, it's just a shame that um, it's so hard for people to, to be able to discern that right now. There's some great tools and resources that I'm happy to share that can help with that. Um, but 
yeah, not everybody has the time. Mm. So is that where certification systems become a more credible or a, a more easy way for people to see that something is legitimate? Sometimes, yes, but sometimes no. I yeah. mean, this is this is the other thing is that certifications, because sustainability has been blowing up, certifications are a massive business now. Yeah. And you there's like hundreds of certifications that you could get for, you know, you know, any one thing, and it doesn't really give a whole picture of like that back to that kind of idea of like a whole system like sure you might be able to verify that your cotton came from a farm that didn't use pesticides but what about everything else like what about the dyes what about every other material that goes into that garment what about the labor like there's no kind of <laughs> be all end all certification and you know you see this in the palm oil industry there's certifications for sustainable palm oil and it's just simply not true mm. and so i think the the problem with certifications is people go, oh, that's good then. Put that in the good pile. Mm. And it kind of means you don't have to do the research. Mm. So I, as much as there are certain certifications that we like to look for in materials that we use, if they're kind of materials that we're sourcing, uh, like, you know, low volume off the shelf sort of things that are like, you know, dead stock or whatever. Yeah, great. We're going to look for like a GOT certification so we know it was made organically and that every stage in the um, in the value chain is certified. But that's less important to me than building a relationship with like the farmer or actually being involved in that whole process and actually, you know, working with my knitter to make, to make the material as sustainable as we can through systems and processes rather than like just relying on a certification, I, I, I'm not dissing them, but I'm also not like saying they are everything. So sadly, no. So from a, let's say I'm a customer and mm. I'm going to purchase a shirt and I'm looking for like, you know, I've only got a fixed amount of time to yeah. spend on making this decision. Yeah. I think I'd be interested to hear how you would see a consumer um, spending their time wisely, doing their research to understand what decision to make, yeah. but also what they're going to get out of that research. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the the thing, right? If, if it doesn't directly benefit or impact you, you're probably less likely to do it. So mm. those things are really important to mm. ask. But look, I would say that the first step is to know what your values are because there's a million things you could focus on and you're never going to find the perfect thing that ticks all those boxes. But if you know what your values are, if you're really, you know, if you're vegan and you're really passionate about making sure there's no animal exploitation in your clothing, that's an area you can focus on and probably, you know, you might be able to squeeze in another another value or two alongside that. Maybe it's also that it's plant-based and not synthetic-based. Um, you know, you, you can start to build like a, a bit of a hierarchy of what's the most important for you when you need to buy something. I think always though, bef you know, before, before that, you can even just question, do I need this thing? That could be a universal sort of value, and then after that, it's like, okay, what are the what's the what's the thing that's most important to me to look for, and then I feel like that gives you the benefit of feeling good about that purchase when you do make it. If you have purchased that thing that ticks that one particular box or two particular boxes that are really really key for you, then you will feel much better about it. You'll tell your friends about it. You'll be like, hey, this is like this this thing and I'm really proud of it because it's made for circularity or, or whatever. And it becomes like a thing that makes you feel good and 
kind of kickstarts that being in love with your garment, not in love, but loving your garment and caring for it and looking after it. It kind of is contributing to that idea of, of connecting with your clothes and sure. treating them sure. well. And like, yeah, for me, I, I, I realized this when I went to buy a pair of sneakers because my sneakers were all like worn out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need to buy a pair of sneakers. So I'm going to go to this like sustainable sneaker brand mm -hmm. because I can't think of any other place I would go to get a sustainable shoe. But then when I started wearing them, I realized that the materials were actually all different materials. So there was some leather in there, there was some rubber in there, there was some plastic in there, there was some metal. And I was like, what am I gonna do with these shoes when these shoes wear out? Sure. And to me, I thought that's actually the most important thing to me is, is that I have a place for these to go next. And if that place is like, oh, it's just going to landfill, for me, that's one of my key values more than just this idea of sustainability, if that makes sense. So what would the best vision or future outcome for circular fashion look like? I actually really believe that the best outcome is a kind of a massive slowing down and a return to small businesses and smaller practice that accommodates the local area that Th those practices reside in and that this I guess beast that is fast fashion or ultra fast fashion as we now have um, with you know other more insane <laughs> insanely fast businesses that have popped up especially in the last couple of years um, I think that that the model itself I'm, I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably unpopular for saying this, but the model to me is not sustainable inherently. And you can't just greenify that process and think it's all going to be okay. It's still, you're, you're, there's still so many <laughs> fundamental issues because at the end of the day, the reason why things are cheap is someone is paying the price for it. And, you know, that's, you know, environmental sustainability, circularity, and the kind of human ethical implications, they're not like separate things. Like they're very much part of the same conversation. But you'll probably notice that many, I guess, larger brands in particular are very focused on the environmental sustainability side of things and probably prefer you not to think too much about how much they're actually paying their workers. Um, and so I think that, you know, if workers were actually being paid what they should be paid for the jobs that they're doing, and uh, I'm talking about just a living wage, that's it, then their business models wouldn't be sustainable anymore. So it's like, it's completely like, I think, just not, a, not something that can exist in the future if we are really going to see circular fashion, um, not in the hijacked sense, but in the really true meaning of, you know, using resources wisely, distributing wealth and people being able to uh, be across lots of different levels of the cycles. And it's not just owned by one, one person or one brand or a couple of, you know, big, big players. So it sounds like you're saying that the financial models of some of the really big brands would have to change completely. Absolutely. And there needs to be like a lot more focus on not just making new clothes and not just recycling those clothes, but how do we repair and increase lifespan and look at longevity? Because longevity is where we can actually have the biggest impact. Um, it requires two things, the mindset shift, mindset shift of the consumer to actually, I guess, commit to that and buy less and actually keep the things they have for longer. But also it means that 
businesses have to accept less profit because they will be selling less clothing. And so I think that's, that's where this is an unpopular opinion is that people are happy for people are happy to be told that things should be more green but they're not happy to be told they should make less profit or make less stuff mm-hmm. so that's where it gets like uncomfortable but it's just reality to me i don't see any other way around it in my in my view and in what i've learned and looking at systems and trying to understand even the economics of it it just doesn't it doesn't make sense that we could keep going like this just sounds, with a greener product, you know? It sounds like a philosophical shift that people need to undertake. It sounds like people mm. would have to really reframe what their values are. Yeah, or even just stop and think about what they are. Maybe they just haven't really slowed down enough to even know what they are. Yeah. 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 If there's more repairs going on, you know, if this becomes a bigger part of the mm. fashion economy, how do, we, how do we make that exciting for people? Yeah. I think that that lies in the the connection that you have with a garment when you first purchase it. So if you buy something without thinking about it much or it doesn't mean much to you to spend whatever money it was on that thing, if that didn't mean much to you in the first place, it's going to be harder for you to like grow a connection with that piece and really care for it and look after it and yeah, invest into repairs and try to ensure that you launder it properly. And if it gets a stain, you don't just throw it on the ground and deal with it tomorrow, but you you deal with it immediately. There's so many like little things that actually will increase the lifespan of a garment. And there, there are plenty of uh, repair geniuses out there. They're making the most beautiful uh, repairing, um, sort of visible mending, invisible mending. There's lots of different ways you can go about it. And it makes the garment more beautiful and more special in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think even if a person who owns the garment can do that repair themselves, they get even more connected with that piece because they've invested time and their own labor into keeping that thing, I guess, maintained. And I think that if that's the mentality rather than, oh, it's just done now, I'm done with it. I'll just buy a new one. It's cheaper anyway. If that's the mentality, then like it's 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 about that that connection, I think. And if you don't have that, it's hard to grow it. And if you do have it, then I guess that's what th- those loved clothes they last the longest because you you don't want to lose it because you love it. It makes you feel good. You put it on, you feel you feel good, you feel powerful, you feel special. I don't know, whatever emotion that it makes you feel when you wear that thing. Um, and the any connection that you have with it that you've invested into it along the way, I think just builds that, makes it stronger. So the more we um, invest in clothes that, we, that are durable and that we really like and that we connect with, the more likely we are to repair them. Yeah, I think so. And I think yeah, and the, and the more you repair something and look after it, the more likely you are to love it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this, um, it's a mentality though that you have to bring into the point of sale, I think. Mm. And, and to see it not as just this garbage or commodity or thing you're just going to keep for one or two wears. I think that that mindset of, of treasuring something and, and caring for something and that's just, for me, that's what, res- that's what like, speaks to me and that's what has helped me to move away from you know I was I grew up with fast fashion myself and you know 
was just like dying to buy the latest thing from the local fast fashion store with the pocket money that I saved or with the job that I had gotten, you know, I've, I definitely know that you you grow up with that, um, especially in like Western culture. And it's, yeah, it's, it's something that you have to eventually realize, <laughs> I think, and, and work on yourself. And it's hard. I had to ban myself from going into certain stores as like a 20 something year old that was like, hmm, I don't want to support that, that business anymore. I don't believe in what they do. So I need to like, just not even look and remove the temptation, <laughs> but it's like been a process. And now I don't even really think about it, but I think, um, yeah, I, I, I do really think that it's about that mindset. And, and I think sometimes when you just, even just not buying the thing right away, that is even just a really simple first step. You see something you really like and your immediate instinct is, I want it, I need it now, I want that dopamine hit. And you just go, no, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna think about it for a week. I'm gonna mull it over and then I'm gonna make a decision. And it's like not that kind of impulse purchase. That sounds so like basic, but it actually works. I suppose repairing uh, and maintaining seem like they're things that are kind of lost a little bit out of our generation, both, mm. both I think in terms of the availability of places to get things repaired, mm. but also I think people aren't very good at maintaining stuff. Certainly if I think about my parents mm. um, and they have a, a better skill set around maintaining the house or maintaining various things. So is that something that we need to bring back into the current generation or at least educate the current generation about? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think there's an education to it. There's also the you know, people are busy and they think that they don't have time to maintain something or to repair something. So that kind of brings up your point about having service providers available as well. So people that don't have the time can actually, you know, give it to someone else and pay them to do it. And that's really great because that's supporting like those cycles, like I was saying before, and those, um, you know, people that are working in the repair industry, like they, they're doing really important jobs. And the more of that that gets lost, the harder it is to engage with a circular economy because we don't just have to change the way we design and choose better materials and figure out the whole recycling thing, but we also need to find all these skills to fill in these gaps that have been lost. And um, I find that that's really tricky uh, because they're, yeah, it's not, it's not very easy to find. Um, even just altering and tailoring, being able to go to a, a tailor and, and get something made or not, not made for you, but maybe you have something that doesn't fit you anymore because your body shape has changed or something's happened and you need to get something adjusted. You know, once upon a time, you would have done that yourself at home. Whereas these days you would normally just probably default, drop it off at St. Vinny's and go buy a new thing. So it's, I think, yeah, I think absolutely repair is a, is a huge part of it. Repair, alteration, remanufacture. I think there's all these little, um, the R's, all the loops before, yeah, before we get to like the very, very end. And yeah, those things should be absolutely, absolutely highlighted and been, be, I guess, invested into. When you're talking to your customers and your you know, your audience through your various socials and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific idea of which segment of your kind of audience you're talking to in terms of their level of education around the, the type of clothes that you make? I think it's a layered approach for us. So something like Instagram, for example, it's very base level. We're not going to get into a, you know, 
deep conversation about the technicalities of something. You know, it's, it's not really the right forum for it. And that's where people discover us. So I think in a place like that, it's very lighthearted. It's like learn more by clicking here. And our website is kind of built in a way that it's layered. So you can dive really deep and you can learn as much as you want to learn, or you could just kind of get some like base level ideas about something. Even if you go to a product page because you're interested to shop, even if you don't want to know anything about circularity or about how it was made, you're going to get a hint of that just by seeing how we've laid out that page and by, you know, the fact that we list every single item that goes in. So we have a bill of materials essentially on every single garment on our website and you can click on it and learn more about where it came from, what was the process, how do we engage with that manufacturer, a little story, I guess, about the product and each individual piece. And so if someone wants to go and read about how we source the thread and what the thread is made of, they can actually do that if they want. But not everybody wants to do that, and that's okay. They're, they might be satisfied by just reading Circular Design or Made in Melbourne. Maybe that's all they need to know right now. Yeah. And they will maybe learn a little bit more through the next stage, which is you know when we send you an email afterwards with a care guide detailing exactly how to look after the garment and how to extend its life, how to compost it one day, these sorts of ideas. And then maybe they think, oh, that's like, that's interesting. I don't know about that. You can compost my, I can compost my skivvy. I had no idea. And they might go and learn a little bit more from the site. And, you know, there's kind of this flow of communications that we're doing almost more aggressively than we are trying to sell people new stuff. So email is like a, a place where we, because we're selling online, Email is a place where we can kind of touch base with the customer after the purchase. And that's where we're really trying to talk to them about how to keep it in use, how to wear it longer. Check out these blog posts about five tips of how to keep your garment lasting, et cetera. And I think that those, those times are when we can really get into the nitty gritty with the customer. And there's other people that are just way more, <laughs> way more into it and they just want to read every single word you've ever written. And tell you when you have a spelling mistake and all that sort of stuff. So I think like there's definitely a mix of people. And a lot of the time though, the feedback is that people have learned something new. So they found us through someone posted about it on Instagram. They found us and then they learned something new and they bought the piece and then they realized that it was also a biological material, 100% biological. And so I think these, these are new concepts for people to experience after purchase. Most of the time you buy something and it's like the end, you're signed up to a marketing list and then you're just going to get aggressively marketed to, to buy the next thing as soon as it comes out and the next sale and the next this and that. And I think like, while we do have to have an element of, hey, everybody, here's the new product when we drop it, we're also um, a lot more focused on the life cycle of the garment and engaging with the customer in that in that space. So yeah, it's a combination of things, I think. And the customer themselves, they're on very different parts of the journey. Some are, yeah, much farther along and others are just learning one thing. And that's, that's great. We cater to them, to them all. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you've got, in some senses, you're developing like quite close relationships with the customers, like almost like a one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship. Yeah, we try to. I'm really obsessed with customer service. That's just something I have cared about a lot because I grew up in hospital. Like I was always working in hospital jobs and customer service was always just like 
drilled into me from a, you know, 14 and nine months onwards sort of thing. And so I think like, that's just something I, I really can never negotiate on. We have to have really good service and that means being really personal and helping people with personal, you know, their personal requests and their personal questions. And so, yeah, that's just something we've always done from the beginning. It's just not a negotiable for me. Hmm. Yeah. I think there's a tendency for people to communicate, hey, if we don't do this. We're all going to die. Yeah. 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 And so circular design, I think is a very, I think in itself is a very hopeful methodology because it's mm. like, hey, look at all the benefits of doing it this way. Mm. It doesn't even necessarily talk about environmental impacts as like a, they're not necessarily as forefront as perhaps with other, you know, ways of, of promoting sustainability. Yeah. It's interesting actually. I think um, I think it is hopeful but it's also potentially an, another opportunity for greenwashing and yeah, not that that's what you're asking, but I, I think that the hopefulness of circular economy and circularity has kind of been diminished for me quite a lot over the last couple of years in particular because of what's been happening in the industry and how it seems to be this kind of, I call it just like hijacked circularity, where it's like let's use circularity as a way to sell more clothes and not actually address the issue which is what I said before, overconsumption, overproduction. And I think that, yeah, I, I do try to be positive and we definitely don't want to make people upset, but we do want to educate people and point them in the right direction as well to learn more and let other places be more the, 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 the deeper, harder to read stuff, <laughs> if that makes sense. But like, yeah, in general, it's it's you're not going to really like win people over by telling them that they're going to, they're ruining the planet. And Mm -hmm. I think as well, there's a lot of consumer guilt that is out there and there's plenty of kind of eco influencers out there that will make you feel guilty as all hell if you don't fit your waist into a jar every year or something like there's, there's plenty of that out there already. And, um, I don't think it needs to be a judgy space. Uh, it can easily go that direction and be very moralized, but I think it doesn't. It doesn't need to be like that, and it shouldn't be like that. It should be open and inclusive, and encouraging people on the journey that they're on, and also recognizing that not everybody is on that same. Um, not everybody needs to address these issues. I think it's a, a very heavily, a, a, like a global West issue. Um, that, you know, we're like, oh, we need to stop buying so much fast fashion. And there's people in the world who can't even afford to buy fast fashion. So I think it's not even, yeah, I don't know. I'm going on a, like, a major tangent, but uh, <laughs> I think it's it's about like opening up the conversation, being able to meet people where they're at and give them simple tools, not overwhelm them with all of the the hard stuff. Because like we've done the hard stuff ourselves and we continue to do the hard stuff in our business how can we now disseminate this information and make it simple for a customer? And that was our idea from the start, a simple solution to a complex problem. And sure, we're not solving the whole problem of the universe, but we are providing an easier, simpler way for a customer to engage with this material, uh, shop consciously when that time comes, when they actually need to, and yeah, be part of hopefully a community as well. So yeah. 
We find working in architecture and construction that people will often start out with the best intentions in terms of sustainability and projects. Yeah. And then when when the the final cost comes in, often often the sustainability elements mm. um, can get whittled away a bit or, or lost completely. Yeah. Um, so cost is this big important thing, and it's it's really really. It's really integral in our industry and important because we all the buildings that, that we do are custom design buildings, as as are most architect design buildings. Yeah. So you're on a the the customers on this journey to to design the building with you essentially and say what they want and don't want. Mm-hmm. Now it's different in your world, mm. but I know that price is still a big big thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how do we how how do you make sure you're pricing your garments? At a at a level that is going to <laughs> both get you a profit and get them bought, and mm. I'm also interested to hear about is it possible to to keep to to have a big successful fashion business that makes a good good amount of profit in working in the way that you're working. Mm. Very interesting. I think price has been something we've been grappling with from the beginning. So when we first launched the label, we set our prices so low um, that we could barely make the product for the price that we were selling it at. And part of that was um, that we calculated our pricing based on the fact that we'd be making a certain volume of of products, um, but that also we would never sell wholesale and we would only sell direct to the customer. So we'd never need that additional markup to sell through a third-party retailer. And so we, we, we calculated it off that sort of um, methodology. But, you know, lo and behold, it was, uh, it was not sustainable for us to do that. And um, so we, we had to put up our prices, um, you know, pretty early on where we were just like, this, is, this isn't going to work. And there's been a lot of, you know, conversation and education and like posts that I've written uh, for our customers about understanding how the pricing works. And I think there's an element of, education around what a garment should cost so that there's this almost recalibration of of the expectation from the customer that you're not just trying to rip them off and it's really tricky because in you know in the world you walk down the street and there's sale signs everywhere and I think one of the biggest things that have kind of uh like I guess, made a customer think that maybe a brand is trying to rip them off is discount culture. And the fact that everything gets discounted at a certain point in time, it just sends a message to the customer, this garment is not worth what the full price is. It's actually, you know, this lower price and we can still make money off this lower price. And that may or may not be true. But I think that the messaging has kind of consistently been that clothes are cheap or can be cheap um, or should be cheap or they're going to get marked down and you can get a good deal, you can get a bargain. And this is like we've been really fighting this mentality from day one. Uh, and part of that was setting the prices at a lower margin so that we could actually talk to customers about pricing and be very transparent about it and open with them and also be like, this is never going to go on sale. We will never do a discount. We'll never do a sale ever um, because it's already the cheapest price it can be. And we've priced it fairly forever for everybody. It doesn't matter if you buy 100. doesn't matter if you buy one. It's the same price. And so that was, you know, that's been really hard because it's like 
completely counter to everything else out there. And it's been, it's been really, it's been challenging. And actually we're at a point now, and this is, you know, a very new thing. So, you know, it's only just kind of coming out to our customers even now that we actually do need some help with selling our clothes. So we are going to be looking into doing some retail partnerships. And it's not to say we're just going to be in every store tomorrow, but we are actually needing to do that because we can't reach uh, the the level we need to for sustainability. And I know what our level is to be sustainable in a financial perspective where we can pay our staff, we can pay our rent, we can cover our overheads, we have a bit more to invest back in the business to, you know, keep it, keep it going. And we're not at that point yet. Like we're surviving, we're making ends meet, but it's not, it's not sustainable long-term. And so it's a, you, I've had to bend my original, like staunch, like, no, we won't do this particular thing, but I've had to bend in some areas in order to keep uh, my values in the other areas from being kind of chipped away at. And that would be in the manufacturing side. We, we are really proud that we pay our workers living wages, fair wages in Australia with good conditions. And I think that for me, that's something I don't want to compromise on. It's just, again, comes back to that whole values thing. So yeah, price is really hard. And we are literally just in the last day of our, um, yeah, of our price increase, our next price increase that happens from tomorrow. And um, we've had a, yeah, like a reverse sale where we've told our customers with two weeks notice that we're going to be putting our prices up and they have like time to buy at the original price if they um, have had their eye on something or they could invest more in a couple weeks and it's still going to be there. It's still going to be just as valuable and amazing. And we're still going to provide all the aftercare support that we do, but it's just us um, kind of grappling with the rising costs of just being in a business right now, mm. supply chains, mm. logistics, raw materials, material scarcity is a thing. Like yeah. we've been experiencing it. If we're experiencing it at our level, it's, it's, it's much bigger than, mm. than, yeah, than people even realize. Mm. So it's tricky. I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. I think that was good. Mm. <laughs> so are you, have you found that people with the, knowing that the price increase is coming, have they bought up a bunch of stuff? I mean, there has been a little, like a little bump. I wouldn't say it's been insane though. Um, and it's a lot of our regular customers as well. So I think um, I don't feel worried about it. Uh, it feels like the right amount. How does a fashion brand figure out where they fit in the market, whether they're like a super expensive high-end product or they're mid or inexpensive? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the things that I think is interesting that comes up in our work is, hey, like, you know, and, and architecture firms talk about this, you know, how could we just appear to be a bit more premium and charge a bit more? Is that a, a, a conversation that you have? I mean, initially the idea was that it was purely based on costings and that that would be the price of the garment. It might mean that a T-shirt was $75 and a dress was $350 not your typical kind of like price bracketing. Much more transparent. So you're, you're but, really focused on, yes. on delivering this product with like I suppose the maximum amount of value that yeah. can, be, can be given to someone. Yes. And the 
concept of marking something up and being more premium, I mean, yeah, it happens in fashion all the time. Like we're working on this like kind of very standard sort of like you mark up from your cost to get to wholesale and you mark up from wholesale to get to retail price. But some businesses are marking up like seven times, not just twice. And, you know, price doesn't always equal higher quality and higher ethics. That's that's also a little bit of a interesting one as well. Of course, well. Yeah. of course. But yes, um, we work off a very transparent sort of model that shows people, yeah, where the how how it goes basically, and why it is the price that it is. And if anyone asks us about it, they can. They're welcome to. We have we don't have anything to hide. We're not trying to swindle people. This is just the price that it costs. And I think it, it, the tricky thing is is that you know we're we're working with um, with skilled makers who are earning you know decent wages, and. If I was to start making all of our clothes offshore, our clothes would be a fraction of the price because the labor is not even, it's like, it's like hundreds of times difference. Mm. So it's kind of, um, how do you, it, it comes back to your ethics. Like, how do you view that? For me, that is, that's not ethical. I don't want to have a business that finds the cheapest needle and uses that so that I can make a greater profit on, on something that I'm going to sell. And I know, like I said before, like 95% of Australian clothing is made offshore. So that's what most people do. Um, and it's not, you know, only about price. Like there are certain skills we've lost in Australia, but it's because of, it's, it's because of that. It's, it's the root cause of it is that it's cheaper to go offshore and then the skills slowly die out. And so it's still the root, the root problem. Yeah. It sounds like you have grown and there's been a lot of like changes and, and um, shifts in the way you do things to help just, just adapt to the, to the environment as you've kind of gone through the, the, the business world. Mm-hmm. What have been the biggest challenges and where do you see it all going? Hmm. Yeah, we've had a lot of challenges. I think the, one of the biggest challenges is probably not unique to a circular fashion label. It's probably just a small business in Australia sort of challenge is that it's, um, especially when you're doing things in a particular way and you want to maintain this integrity, especially if you want to manufacture locally and have this transparency and be, be able to be proud of every step of what you're doing. It's very, it's very expensive and you, you pay for, you pay for all of that stuff. And it's not always apparent all of the details that kind of happen behind the scenes. Like you can't always tell everybody every single thing because it's overwhelming how much there is. And it's not always apparent when you hold up that business compared to another business, like why, why we are different or how we're different. And it's a really competitive sort of industry and space. Like there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of, um, yeah, competition for customers. And at the end of the day, as much as we've tried to diversify our income stream, that's our main source of, of being able to go on. Uh, and, and it should be like, like it, you know, like I can hire out my space all I like, but that's like, you know, it's a Band-Aid for actually the business being sustainable um, or not being sustainable. And so to achieve like a, a level of sustainability, um, financially speaking, it, it, it's really it's really tricky, and we've we've struggled to do it 
on our own with without outside investment. Like it's it's really really hard to do. And Australia is a small marketplace as well. It's it's and there's more people competing for the customer. So, you know, and then stack that up against with all the other things we've talked about today, like you know, pricing, conditioning, and um, just the volume that people think they should be able to buy for the amount of money that they think they should be able to spend. You know, I think it's uh, it's all we're always fighting is what I'm trying to say. We're always like pushing against what's just accepted as normal and we're always pushing against it and fighting it. Sometimes it's easier than other times when people are really um, on board and they get it and they tell us about it and they and they give us great feedback. Like that makes it so much better and so much easier and worth it 100%. But sometimes there's periods of time when you feel like no one's listening, no one cares. And that's hard. You know, small business life is really hard already. And yeah, if you're not kind of subscribing to all of the things that you're supposed to subscribe to as an e-commerce business, like it's, it's, you're just fighting. You're fighting a lot. Sometimes I'm too tired to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. Um. But I didn't tell you how I overcame them because I haven't. We're not... You know, it's a, it's never, it's never solved, right? Yes, I understand. I understand. It's tricky. And you know, you get to this level where you can take on staff, and it's like amazing. I'm going to employ my first person, but then you've got like this responsibility that yeah. you've got to maintain this now. It wasn't, just, you know, when it's just me in my, in my second bedroom, like on my computer and sewing on the side and cutting my own patterns, like it's like the stakes are lower mm. and then they just, they grow as you grow. And so it's, yeah, kind of, um, kind of like it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's just a small business thing, right? We're a, con- we're a professional consultancy. Mm. So for us, it's like, we've got to always have new clients coming in the door. Yeah. yeah. No. And I'm, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think, um, something I learned back in my, um, I used to be a store manager at a Starbucks store for 10 years. Anyway, that's another lifetime ago. But something I learned there, and I learned a lot of things there, was that you're always hiring before you're ready for that thing because if you're waiting till you're ready, it's too late. Like you're already stressed and kind of screwed. So I think I've taken a bit of that on. But at the same time, if the work isn't there, it's like – what am I going to do? Like I need, I like the, the work needs to be there, which means the orders need to be coming in, which means, you know, we need to be making sales. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like a similar thing, but it's so far has worked out. Okay. But yeah, it's, um, it's just something that weighs on my mind. Thanks for listening to make good. If you'd like to hear more of make good, please subscribe to the show on your podcasting service. If you'd like to learn more about ABCH, check out their webpage at abch.world or their Instagram also at abch.world. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamalab.com.au. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. And this podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. Catch you next time.